for the Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is television composer and author Rich Tizzoli. But first of all, the Blurred Lines court decision of a few years ago has been having a tremendous effect on the music business. And it's one of those things that's kind of beneath the surface. But if you're an artist or a songwriter, you notice that this is really a big deal. So just a little refresher, a few years ago, Robin Thicke and Pharrell wrote the song Blurred Lines, which was a big hit. They were sued by the Marvin Gaye estate, saying that the song sounded a lot like Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up. Everyone in the music business sort of thought that Robin Thicke was going to win this because if you compare the songs side by side, they weren't the same. But the feel was. There is the same basic sound on both songs. So everyone, even musicologists, thought that the court would favor Robin Thicke. In fact, Robin Thicke lost, and the Marvin Gaye estate got $7.3 million. Well, as a result... The music business is now so paranoid about inadvertently copying something that isn't theirs that now what you see happening is everybody that's in the room while a song is being written gets songwriter credit. So that's why you're seeing songs that have 10 and 12 and 15 different songwriters, and it's basically a cover-your-ass sort of thing. The same thing happens if someone writes a song and then thinks, oh my God, this section sounds a little bit like this other song. Well, immediately what will happen is the attorneys will contact the publisher for that other song just again to cover everybody. They'll give them money and they'll give them songwriting credit. And even though something like that may not hold up in court, they're just making sure there's never going to be a problem. So now coming up is the appeal. Robin Thicke and Pharrell are appealing the decision. And of course, the industry has come out in their support. There's more than 200 artists that are supporting this. Although the support really doesn't mean anything. It's symbolic, if nothing else. But word is now coming out from people that watch these things very closely, talented attorneys, saying that what would happen is it would be overturned. And now they're not so sure. So this case, this appeal, is going to affect songwriting, especially pop songwriting, very much in the future, whichever way it goes. So this decision is supposed to be made very, very soon. So watch out for it, especially if you're a songwriter, because it really makes a difference in your future and in how much you have to share with other people. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. The second edition of my social media promotion for musicians handbook is now available on Amazon, iBooks, Ingram, and a bookstore near you. It's the manual for marketing yourself, your band, and your music online. It also covers how to use virtually every important online platform for promotion. Also, you can check out my courses at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast and watching my blogs over the past couple years, you know that I report frequently on Gibson guitars, or now it's called Gibson Brands, and the financial trouble that they're in. Basically, what Gibson did was they made a bet 
that even though the music industry is contracting somewhat, especially guitar sales, the rest of the electronic entertainment industry was actually exploding. So they went out and they acquired all these companies, Onkyo and Tascam and TIAC, number like that, some hi-fi companies, thinking that the diversification would actually help them in the end. And it turns out that none of that has. So Gibson is in trouble, and what they've been doing is selling off a number of their real estate properties in around Nashville and trying to raise money any way they can. Well, the point of this is that now Gibson is actually in Walmart. Yes, they have a new brand. It's called the Maestro brand of guitars in Walmart. There's an SG-style guitar for $99 that comes with a 5-watt amp and a cord and a strap and picks and strings and an instruction DVD, and an acoustic guitar for $65.99. Yes, it's Gibson. And it actually says Gibson. So the headstock says Maestro, but if you look on the truss rod cover, it says Gibson. So Gibson has really fallen. When you take a really successful brand like that and you go to Walmart, that's not helping it at all. Now, what's interesting, if you look at the description online for these Walmart Maestro guitars, you find some very interesting details. For one, they claim that they're unisex guitars and also based on an LP design, based on a patent dating back to 1961. And also another interesting point, it helps develop basic life skills. So there's all these things, boy, they're really trying to gin up their numbers here. I don't know how much this will help, but I guess when you need money, you try to get it whichever way you can. But anyway, it's pretty sad that Gibson has fallen that far, and now you find it in Walmart. My guest today is television composer and author Rich Tizzoli. Rich has written an incredible 16,000 music cues that have been used on more than 10,000 cue sheets over an incredible 714 television series. Rich is also a very talented engineer as well, and he's also the author of several books, including The Ultimate Guitar Tone Handbook, which we wrote together. He regularly writes for a number of pro audio and guitar magazines as well. Rich gave me the inside scoop on his composition and mixing tricks when we spoke via phone from a studio in upstate New Jersey. It's been three and a half years or so since we last spoke on podcast I just looked it up. It was podcast number eight that you did. We're now at 184. What has changed for you in those three plus years? I would say what's changed is basically the, the fundamentals of television composing have changed in the sense of I'm still just doing television composing. But I've noticed that the shift has gone a lot into a lot of crime-centric music uh, and... This, like CBS Sports wants funk and Fox NFL wants rock. And, and, they, and they kind of like, I've noticed that the networks tend to go along the lines of what's popular. You know, believe it or not, I'll still use the Maroon 5 as an example of, of that, what that kind of stuff gets requested or Bruno Mars, obviously. And then in cable television land, their sense of adventure has gone out off the charts meaning the mixtures of combinations of sounds of music is just outrageous in other words um hillbilly funk rock or something just you know the requests are just unbelievable and i've also noticed definitely that the the level of production quality has gone up dramatically in other words um 
orchestration parts are bigger and the sounds are bigger and they're a lot more intent on the focus of the music for each show. Wow, that's a lot. How does that affect your technique then? It definitely affects my technique. Um, as far as crime music, I'm going to use that as a generic term. That is definitely extremely popular. I do tons and tons of it. And technique-wise, what I do is I push myself to higher levels of orchestration is what I do. In fact, I just got back from an orchestration lesson now and with Kristen Hebner, who's my teacher. And what I have her do constantly is I sit down. We sit down at her piano and I say, okay, make me uncomfortable. <laughs> and this sounds weird, but that's, that's what I do with her. I say, let's study. We spent an hour on D minor today. I'm not making, not making this up. So the various ways to make you scream, to make the two to the one, the, the, the one to the three, stay away from the five or stay away from the third minor or major. If you want to not give away your key center, if you want to just have a, this generic cue. So some cues go generic which means stay away from the three minor or the three major. Some cues want you to go minor and that will be really uncomfortable. Some cues want to be happy. In other words, the joyous factor will bring the three in as a major. Um, I think where I'm going with all of this is just that I, I push myself to new boundaries. I really do. I definitely study more film score based material. I bring in more orchestral elements. I bring in more strings underneath the pads. And really, I just push my craft to a new level every time I can possibly push myself. Okay, so this is different from before because you were mostly guitar-based. And now it sounds like you're going away from that or augmenting it. Which, which is it? I would use augmenting. I definitely <laughs> still am a guitar-centric guy. Um, what's really cool is that a lot of the show's requests my guitar stuff and uh, you learn how to be uncomfortable with the guitar. So you, you take what you study in orchestration class and you transpose it to the guitar. I use a lot of low tuned guitars. I've moved into the world of seven and eight string guitars. Uh, the eight string guitar is E B E A D G B E. And when you plug that thing in and you put it through an even tight H nine, You've got, a, you've got an uncomfortable score just based upon that alone. So it's augmented, Bobby. It's, it's, it's using guitars with strings, or I still do a lot of, you know, extremely uncomfortable, I use that word a lot, guitar tracks, and with a lot of pads that just drone underneath, and then you let the guitar be above it. I hear guitar a lot on television used in, in crime and, and drama, so it's an augmented thing. The guitar is used differently in a lot of that, especially in drama. You can't do what you're doing before, can you? That is exactly right. No, no, you would get, you know. You know, that type of thing. But if you have a lot of swelling reverb in that, that alone right there would be a cue. Um, and then, so is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's not the same as, you know, uh, <laughs> right, playing a country lick or something. It's, it's taking guitar in a place that it's not usually, that it doesn't usually go. And um, one of the weapons that I discovered um, was the 
honestly, I'm going to plug him because it's, it's real and I'm not plugging him for any other reason than Helix and the uh, JVT guitars that allow me to get all kinds of bizarre sounds and bizarre tunings. Wow. That's the line six, you know, product. And I'll be the first to say that I was not a line six guy until I discovered Helix, but it really pushed it to a new level with that particular guitar, the Variax that lets me instantly dial up different tunings, you know, versus, you know, so here's my telly now. There's a drop D obviously. Yeah. So with Helix, I press a couple of buttons or I have a preset. Boom. My guitar's in drop D. You turn the knob. I'm in drop B, which I use a lot or just a lot of weirds. And then you have a lot of odd sounds on top of it. So what I've tried to do is expand the repertoire of my guitars from, like I was saying, seven and eight string instruments into uh, Variax and Helix and just, just push the boundaries as much as I can. Um, in the back of Helix, I actually run two even tight H9s in the um, aux one and two. Um, so I have that much swell and volume um, technique at times with guitars. So I'm using it as a, as a particular kind of sonic palette is what I do with the guitars versus more traditional, you know, funk, soul, rock, whatever. I still do that stuff, but I just push it to new levels. Now the guitar sim is interesting from the, or the, the amplifier simulators is interesting because you have a really nice collection of old amplifiers. So it must've been very convincing for you to go from your collection to a simulator. I mean, there are people that wouldn't do it or they do it kicking and streaming, and, and you've done it pretty much looking for something new, which is cool. That's a good way to put it, looking for something new. Do the fenders in, in Helix sound like my other fenders? Not necessarily, but having said that, they can sound different, and that's all I want, you know? Um, I don't have all these models of fenders that are in Helix, so why don't I call up this particular cabinet? one? Let's change that speaker to this. Let's change this impulse response to this. Um, it's, I call it the Lego block technique. I just, you know, you, you just say, Oh, I like this better. I like that. And yeah, there's certain ones that don't cut my mustard and that's just a fact. And that's when I'll go to, you know, my own, in fact, I'm playing through my old Gibson now. There's a certain thing about an old Gibson and the old reverb. Um, but to be able to go into Helix and dial up all these bizarre, amplifiers. I used them yesterday. I used a number of different amps yesterday. In fact, what I do is I have the Helix uh, on screen and I'll just click through a variety of amps and say, oh, I like that one. I like this one. I like that one. Um, so yeah, the point is, is that they've done a great job. Is it perfect? No, but nothing is perfect. And it gives, it frankly just gives me a lot more options. You know what I find interesting? I posted a video of Metallica's new live rig for, for both Hetfield and, and the other guitar player, I can't think of his name. And basically, you know, these are guys that were Marshall Boogie guys, and now they're using Axe Effects. And the reason why was because every single show, it was going to be the same. And not only that, all they had to do is carry two racks, and it had everything in it, plus backups and everything. So it was like brilliant. Uh, Hetfield actually had an amplifier as well, and it was a solid state amp that then fed a cabinet. So if he wanted to get feedback, that's the way he would do it on stage. But Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> but, but what's interesting is the fact that now sims have been so accepted that 
no one even blinks an eye. Just a couple years ago, I think if you said you're using an amplifier simulator, people would think, well, maybe you can't afford, you know, to have good stuff, but it's not yeah, like that anymore. That's a really valid point. Also, what that allows them to do, which is really critical, and this relates to me as well. Um, actually, this is an interesting point, Bobby. Um, it allows them to keep their volume to a reasonable level and not blow their freaking hearing out. Yeah. Uh, because they will blow their hearing out. And I had to do some tracks for um, uh, Ink Masters, which is Dave Navarro's show. And it was really heavy. It was Rocktronica, which is really hard, you know, super pulsing beats with super heavy guitars. And I always use my Les Pauls for that. And in order to feel those tracks, I played really, really loud. So I like to, I, I mix really low, but I like to play my guitars loud. Mm -hmm. I like to feel, right? Yeah. And I had noticed days afterwards, um, tinnitus. I noticed it. I, I, I screwed my ears up and I heard this pulsing in my left ear and I was like, shit. And so the point that I'm getting at is, is that you got to be really careful with, with that kind of thing. And, and that allows them to keep their stage volume down. But another thing that relates to simulators, Bobby, is that Metallica uses hard, heavy sounds for, you know, probably 95% of the show. That's what simulators do best. The hardest thing to do is to get the clean amps is to get, they don't have Gibson amps to begin with, but to get those fenders and certain other amps like that, you know, Roland JC one twenties, those are the hardest things for simulators to get. It's it's, I find it that the Marshalls, the matchless, the uh, Ubersonics, you know, anything like that, any of those big heavy amps are, are easier to get simulated. Yeah, that makes sense. It definitely makes sense. You mentioned before I started recording here, you mentioned you were going to pull up your ASCAP statement. <laughs> and, and what I'm curious about is you told me the number of cues that you just surpassed, which was what, 15,000 or something. It was an incredible amount. I have 16,635 cues and I've been on 10,855 cue sheets and 714 series. And uh, it, it kind of even blows my mind. I don't even know. I, I, I that's actually I start each day by logging into ASCAP to see. Oh, I don't know what it was because there's too many now. But I just go, oh, cool. I'm on a different series or a different cue sheet or something. How much of what you're doing is custom work? So in other words, you're you're getting an assignment from a music supervisor or a show or whatever to come up with something. Actually, a huge amount. Most of it. I rarely just write to write anymore. I haven't. In fact, I, maybe it's been two years since I've written just to write, which I should do because it's kind of fun. But 99% are assignments from um, production companies, my agents. I have a couple of different ones or um, the, the actual network themselves. Often some, somebody will contact me and say, we well, need X for X show. So what happens is that I'll get an assignment for, let's say it was Ink Masters. I would get a bunch of examples of what they use on the show. That would give me an idea of where to go. And then I'll also go watch the show, which I've seen Ink Masters a bunch of times. This was some spinoff I think they're doing. Um, and then so I'll be like, oh, okay, I get it. And then I'll hand in those particular cues with that energy level or that you know type of sound. And then they can use those in whatever other shows that that production company might be doing that would need that kind of sound. So I think that's why my numbers go like they go is because I'm very lucky that they go to companies that are doing multiple shows. So production companies, um, hand in shows to networks and those production companies are often doing any number of shows like a, a 
the bigger the production company, the more shows they're doing. And then those queues sit in their custom production library. And therefore, one queue of mine will be used on numerous shows quite often. Got it. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it was targeted at first, but then it sits in there and gets used for whatever they need it for, which is why the guitar crime stuff gets used so much because it, it, it will be targeted for a particular episode or a particular show, particular series, particular year. And then that show, the, a lot of these shows get picked up again or whatever happens. And then they go back to the library uh, or they'll say, all right, the show got picked up again. For example, Northwood's law on animal planet it keeps getting picked up because it's a very popular show. Then they spun it off into Northwood's law, uh, New Hampshire or something. And they want more of this, of the like. So more acoustic Northwood's law be percussive. And I get my 12 strings out and my, you know, slide guitars, my Dobros, all that stuff. So a lot of this is custom. Does that include the tempo? How do you determine the tempo? Tempo is, is instinct. Uh, tempo is, is based upon watching the show, understanding some of their examples that they send me. They will often also say, you know, keep these fast. I'm writing the tempos that I'm writing for food network stuff. In fact, I can't even remember. I'm embarrassed to say, I can't remember if it's food network. It's, it's some other show that I'm doing. I, I lose track. Um, and I'll just read over the notes and they'll say, make sure the tempo, the tempos are up or in the, in the, in the, the particular crime stuff, I was shocked at how slow it was, how meandering and, and like, wow, and uncomfortably slow. So you have to learn how to fill up slow time with space or honestly, the art form is the simplicity of the cue to not overdo it. When it, when it comes to tempo, that's instinct based upon what the show tends to use. In, in a lot of shows, especially in reality television, there's various moods that they need at different times. There'll be the drama section. There'll be the slow section. There'll be the crime section. There'll be the investigation section. There'll be the, the joyous section where they solve something. Those tempos tend to change. And that's where the major minor feels change as well. Ah, got it. Got it. How many of your cues are international? Oh, a huge amount, actually a huge amount. I think I'm in 30 countries. I'm over. I'm shocked when I see my international statement. Um, now, mind you, it would be like I made a dollar seventy-five in Jakarta last year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, literally, I think I saw something for six or seven cents recently. That, or it was even less. It may even been a penny. I was like, wow, that's fascinating. But then, a lot of the shows I do are extremely popular in Canada and and Great Britain uh, and Australia. Loves you know Duck Dynasty and Pawn Stars and all those shows. They love that stuff. <laughs> so my my cues go out on quite a quite a bit of international that's been quite a growing scene for me now i know you used to do your cues with the drummer and you'd record everything live and and the way you explained it to me that was your secret sauce so to speak do you still work that way or do you work electronically as well uh i do more electronic now than i did live but i still definitely do live um again the live is great because it's live and then this, this thing comes out and I tend to use more of the bigger, meaner amplifiers at that time. When I work in grid mode, the reason I tend to push towards grid mode in the past, let's say two years is because they want more cut downs. Now the cut downs are the shorter versions or the stings, which is maybe six or seven or 10 seconds. When you're going live, I, I have to really be careful about how I edit my cut down because you're live. 
Yeah. Um, in grid mode, it's, it's chop, 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 boom, edit, you know, paste, make a cymbal swell, cover up that bad edit of the guitars cutting over each other. There's a lot of things to learn like that. Wow. So, there's, you know, it, yeah, there's a lot of little things that happen. Um, I do both. Um, something I'm going to share, which is interesting. I actually just wrote something for Pro Sound News on this that happened by accident. I got an eye infection. There's a good start to the story, isn't it? <laughs> what happens when you get an eye infection? You can't really see the screen. And so I'm like, oh, shit, I really can't see the screen very well. This is not good. How the hell am I going to work? How am I going to mix these cuts? And I was like, wait a second. I have faders right in front of me. You forget in, in the land of Pro Tools, in the land of mouse mixing, you forget to use the freaking faders. Yeah. And so I have eight faders in front of me. And what I did is I went like this. And that's the sound of me actually doing it right now, pulling all the faders down in the mix. And then, oh, let me bring these faders. Up. Oh, isn't that nice? Oh, listen to that. <laughs> right? Yeah. You forget the egg and the flow, the feel, the touch, the sensitivity of faders. And this all was brought about by an eye infection. And what I've been doing ever since and is breaking down each cue. I, I recorded it. I get the basic mix up. And then whoop, all the faders come down. Now, my cues aren't huge. In other words, maybe 16 channels. You don't need a lot. Maybe 20 at most. Unless it's an orchestrated piece, maybe it's more. So it's not as hard as it sounds. But the point is, is that you just get into the touch of sensitivity of faders. And it was, it's been a real revelation lately. And it's, it's allowed me to ebb and flow my music a little more, especially in the, in the world of, of strings, when I'm orchestrating the cellos and the violas and the, anything down low, the basses, and I'm swelling them. Uh, I used East, West, and Vienna quite a bit, or real players if I can. And to be able to use the fader is an interesting old school touch, right? Listen to us old school. But hey, <laughs> it's, it's pretty, right? It's kind of funny, but yeah. it's real. It, it really started, it made me appreciate faders again. Let's talk about mixing since you, you've gone there. And of course, you made your living as an engineer for a long time before you got back into playing as your main source of of what you do every day. I know that you're a great mixer and you're able to apply that immediately to what you're also producing. But I'm curious, what can't you do in a mix for your cues that you would normally do in a music mix? Ah, what a what a great question actually. There are definite distinct sonic differences. Um and I've maintained this for quite some time is that I will chop off way more low end than I would in a mix. Um, in a mix, meaning a mix for an artist, mm -hmm. um, a traditional vocal based mix. And I've been getting back into mixing people's records. I stopped for a long time, but they, they pulled me out of quote retirement. Um, <laughs> and it's been two things. It's been enjoyable and frustrating because I haven't had to deal with vocals in a long time. And now I have to deal with vocals and vocalists. And therein lies the thing that you're talking about right there. The ebb and the flow of the vocal. And that's the, the, the main fundamental difference between what I do for a television composer and mixer versus a traditional mixer is vocals. Uh, and as we both know, the vocal is the center of the universe. That's build everything around it because that's, the, that's what a song is. <clears throat> so I've gone back here, but the interesting thing is, is mixing the vocal records that I've been mixing lately. I've really enjoyed the art form of it because my chops 
my mixing chops have gotten so refined that the artists are shocked how fast I can get a good mix up and how fast I work. Now, fast doesn't always mean good, but when you're mixing just about every day, you, you've got your tricks down, you've got your techniques. Um, so it's the bottom end is what I take out a lot of in television mixing. I don't need all that stuff. It's not going to come through. Um, and also, um, I push my TV mixes, honestly, to the limits of not to distortion, but I push them as loud as I can get them. And I know there's those volume wars, but I'm not fighting a volume war. I'm fighting a volume war of an editor sitting in an edit suite who's going to go click, 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 click through these tracks. So I'm, I just make my stuff sound nasty. That's my, that's my word that I use all the time. Does this thing hit me in the gut and feel nasty? Um, whereas with a record, uh, I just did something where Chris Athens mastered it. And I, I purposely, you know, dropped the master fader down. I gave him room to work. All those other things. There's a lot of, a lot of little things that you think about you do or don't do based upon artist or no artist. Wow. Do you EQ for dialogue? So do you pre-EQ, in other words, for, for dialogue so there's a space for it? Mm, I mix for dialogue, which is weird. I, I, I bet you nobody else does this, and I don't mean this as a, like, oh, it's just me doing it. It's just this technique that I got, and I've talked about this before. I pan the bass off to the right, and I tend to pan the kick slightly to the left because I'm not out to impress anyone. This sounds odd, but I'm not out to impress the headphone mixer to say, wow, listen to the production on that record. Man, I just want my track to rock, and I want them to use it in a television show. And so I don't care if the kick is dead up the center or if the bass is off to the right. I've been doing it for years, actually, this way. Um, so I kind of lost track of our question. Do you EQ for dialogue on your mixes? EQ for dialogue. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant by I'm pulling out low end. and I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm carving dialogue frequencies out, but I'm definitely leaving a lot of space in my musicality. That's one thing that I've, you know, if you hopefully get better at your craft as you go along and I'm thousands and thousands of mixes and compositions in, and I have to create, compose and mix myself. That's basically, you know, what comes out of my brain is that, um, I've, I've created, um, I've gotten a lot better at, at mixing, simply to create space and that's not necessarily mixing. That's probably also in the composition phase or frequency phase. Um, a strange tool that I use, and this isn't meant to pitch them by any means, but the sound toys filter freak, hmm. um, even though I love sound toys and I love everybody has sound toys, the sound toys filter freak is one of my magic go-to plugins for guitars, for everything. And the reason is you sweep the filter. It's not like a traditional EQ where you're just going to cut or raise. I take a guitar or something and I'll put filter freak on it and I'll either be narrow or wide and I'll just sweep it around left or right. And that's my EQ. It's like a five second EQ, but it it lets me cut. I'm all about cutting frequencies, cut, 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 cut. So I boost very little. I cut bass. I cut everything actually. And I, I, I fit my mixes more in that way with EQing to cut versus to boost. And I use filter freak and, Sonox is my favorite particular generic EQ because it's so transparent. Um, but um, I think that's the answer to your question. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, I agree with you, and I try to use uh, cut more than boost as much as I can. And, you know, what's interesting, I got a country record into mix recently, 
at, out of Nashville, which was unbelievable. I mean, they cut these fabulous tracks in four days that, you know, you go, wow, how does this happen? That's what they do. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're great at that. So, But what was interesting was when I opened up the Pro Tool session and I looked at it, the engineer who did the rough mixes, and, and, and the rough mixes were awesome to begin with, and, and it was one of those things where, where I'm thinking to myself, boy, I hope I can beat this. I looked at all the EQs, and there, there was hardly any boosting anywhere. It was cut. And it was like, I, I looked at this, and I thought, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> you know, it's one of those signs that, oh, yeah, okay, you get it. That's a, actually a really good point. I, I think where you're going there, too, is, and it relates to the point of why I tend to cut a lot, is because I actually am very blessed to control most of what goes into my Pro Tools rig. In other words, I control my guitars, I control my amps, I control my bass. Um, maybe I'm a control freak, Bob. You know, yeah. That's a very good possibility, be <laughs> yeah. being that uh, we are producers. Um, but the point is that the sonic sonics going in are extremely important to me. It's why I use Earthworks mics and really good Millenniums. I'm looking at my Grace, my Millennium, my focus rights. I use good, my manlies. I use great things in. I tend to make sure that everything goes in really, really good. And then I don't have to necessarily boost as much because I'm not compensating for bad stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Definitely. And that's your point, that you had a, you had a record that was recorded. That's what they do down there, man. They're, they make great sounding records in Nashville. That's just a fact. So if you got the tracks and they were cut already, Maybe you'll get through by boosting, Bobby. Yeah, all right. Make it sound different. <laughs> exactly. Okay, uh, let me get a little geeky with you. So what are the favorite plugins that you use? And I know you have a number of them that you really like and you always go to, and that's what I'm trying to find out. Um, I'm, I consider the world to be blessed to have universal audio. <laughs> that's yeah. quite a great statement, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I don't mean that in any other way except for, wow, wow. For me to call up the stuff that's in my mix would take racks and racks of gear. Maybe that's an old school thought, but um, it's true. The, the, the quality of the, of the products that we have mixing-wise um, are just outrageous. You know, interestingly enough, I've, I tend to... I've moved back to stuff like experimenting with even tied nine tens. And like you just, you just reach out somewhere different, you know, just go somewhere and, and try something unusual. Put that, put that mono guitar and put it into a mono to stereo, even tied dual nine ten, And they're like, Oh, listen to that. You know, just, just go somewhere different. So <clears throat> it's still fundamentally the go-tos, you know, the Sonoxes and, and the, the Eventides and, and the UA and Sound Toys, you know, Waves and, and things like that. Um, but I, I'm very impressed with the way Universal Audio keeps pushing the boundaries of, of, of Sonics. I've been using the, um, um, oh, I got to think of the name of it. It starts with a T. It, it's, it's a plugin that it, it basically just adds a little bit of distortion into your signal. There's just there's just plugins that are that do a little bit or they do a lot, um, and just the ability to have so many. I love the 1176. I think that's my favorite plugin in the world. That's my desert island plugin. Yeah. And I use them in so many different ways. And just to have multiple 1176s, and I happen to more than any other EQ use Pultec, hmm. the software Pultec EQs. 
there's just something about them to me that are just round and delicious and they just work. Um, they're not precise by any means to me, but that's what I like about them. They're broad stroke plugins and they just have this toot about them. And that's one thing I would, if I was to say to any reader or listeners is, is the better word. If I was to say any listeners who are just kind of coming up in the business, how do you create a toot? T-U-D-E, and I mean that without, with, in, in all sincerity, with what you're delivering to these people, to whoever you're delivering your product to. How do you create your own attitude in your music? And my particular thing is that I use 1176s and things like that. I push the crap out of my drums. I, I, I really hit them hard. I hit everything hard. I just come at things with a, you know, that's my fist hitting my, how do I create this impact? Um, and that comes without question, and you know this, from hundreds and thousands of mixes, from doing it over and over and over, from being relentless in your pursuit of getting better. Um, just right now, I'm looking at a Pro Tools screen. My master bus, the API 2500 is definitely one of my favorite master bus compressors. And uh, the Massey limiter, I happen to love Massey plugins. They're quirky and weird. Um, BX Digital is where I use the Brainworks BX is what I use to cut. When I say I cut frequencies and cut bass, I have that. I have my master fader cutting bass information a lot so that I don't overwhelm. I think the worst thing that a, a, a TV editor can get would be bassy sounding tracks, muddy tracks to make your television mix muddy. Oh, so yeah. I deliver them unusually clean. Um, and by the way, that plug I was talking about is the oddball thermionic culture vulture. Oh, yes, right, yeah, yeah. What, what an oddball plug-in, but all I do is I turn it on, I don't use any knob except for one, the drive knob. Boom. You put the thermionic culture vulture on bass and you just kick that drive in a little bit, you have just, you know, that little bit of attitude. One thing that I was going to talk about real quick in, in go-to plug-in, reverbs. I'm, I'm a huge guy, especially in crime, I swim my things in reverbs. So I spend an inordinate amount of time studying different reverbs and I tend to come back to the, the tried and choose, you know, the Altverb sevens and with the giant um, churches and, and things like that. But the Eventide black hole, man, what a weapon that thing is. What a, what a strange sounding in a cool way, um, just a big powerful. And, and like I said, I use the H nines quite a bit. So Eventide um, Altverb, the, one of my favorite, 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 favorite reverbs is the AMS reverb, which is an old classic, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. The AMS RMX-16. Wow. On the non-linear setting. And I put my, even drum loops, Bobby, I'll put into that just to give that, it's the, it's the Peter Gabriel sound. Yes, it is. But if you just use it a little bit, you get this certain depth that you don't really get with reverb. Non-lin is a strange tool to use, but I use it all the time. Do you use that at all? I do, mostly on snare drum, which everybody thinks about, but never to the point where it's obvious. I, that's just what you're saying, I uh, think. I use it to the point, well, here's how I use it, and I've been doing this more and more recently with crime music, is that the crime stuff, especially the faster-paced crime stuff, likes big drums. Like, when I say big drums, it would be the kind of drums that would be in a Hans Zimmer film score. So... What I've been doing is, is, and now that I got into fader mixing, interestingly enough, is that I'll put, I'll ebb and flow 
the big drums into the non Lynn AMS and create this uh, Peter Gabriel passion. You know that record? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And I'll do that with the crime drums. And they're like, whoa, it's outrageous. And interestingly, a lot of the crime music needs, uh, needs this. That's just me doing a shake. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? They want that all the time. So if you take the shaker and you put that into, even when I'm tracking it, by the way, I put it into non-lin, way louder than you think it would be. It creates this gigantic, from a mono track to a giant stereo non-lin sound. It fits. It's creepy. Wow. That sounds very cool. I got to try that. It is cool. It, it's really cool. It totally works. While I'm tracking it, I'm sitting at my desk listening live through the AMS. And it makes you actually say, wow, this is really cool. Mm. So that's a go-to. And they just released the AMS um, RMS-16 um, updated There's with a bunch of new sounds out of it. That just came out, I think, just two weeks ago or something. So I've already been digging into that. Well, you know what's different about you? And just in our conversation here, I mean, I, I knew this anyway, but it's more obvious than ever to me. The fact that you're coming at this much differently, and I'm talking about production and mixing of your cues you're coming at it from a completely different standpoint than most other composers that i know most other composers will compose what they do they'll mix it and then they'll send it off but you're thinking about tailoring it in multiple ways making things more exciting you're coming at it more as a as a mixer when it comes to mixing than as a musician who happens to be mixing if you know what i mean that's exactly right. I actually take, I consider Pro Tools and mixing one of my instruments. Hmm. In other words, if you were to think of strings, guitars, blah, 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 that sounds nice, but my effects and my mixing is an instrument. Yeah, makes sense. What's the most fun thing that you do? You mean as far as shows? No, I don't mean shows. I mean, if you had something that you were supposed to do every day or you were tasked to do every day, what would you consider to be the most fun? I love to kill people. <laughs> <laughs> That's hope that that won't go across that great, but I mean it with all sincerity to, I love to kill people's emotions. In other words, I find great joy in making you uncomfortable and in, in learning how to make my sounds make you uncomfortable. I study it greatly. Like I said, I was studying with my orchestration teacher today, some really uncomfortable tonalities, certain keys. In other words, the key of D minor is completely different than the key of C minor. The same notes, bing, bing, bing. They really are different. They feel different. There's a reason that D major was called the king's key and that the kings love their songs made in D because it's proud. But we were, listening, we were studying why C and D are so different. What a strange lesson that was. But what a great lesson it was. So I'll push things into D more than I would in C in, in what I'm getting at is that crime music and, and making people uncomfortable with guitars, like turning the guitar into a weapon of sonic uncomfortableness is just, it just doesn't get better than that. You know, I'm curious how much of that has to do with tuning. So for instance, if you were in uh, 432 rather than 440, how much of a difference would that be? Only some, only some has to do with tuning. When I have the eight string, certain sounds like with, when you have an eight string with a low E, which I think I think it's a I can't remember the gauge of the string. It's huge. It's a telephone pole. You're going to get a different feel to that E than the E that's just two strings above it. So 
tuning definitely is relevant, but it's more the uncomfortableness of finding various positions on the guitar that, and, and really I'm going to plug Eventide. It's really about plugging into a certain sound. And, and this goes to where you were talking about with the sonics of production. You can take a G chord and put it through a very strange patch and it would sound fine. Uh, it would sound uncomfortable and unusual. So it's not necessarily about the tuning, but it is, I definitely play a lot with, um, notes on the guitar. In other words, I could do a whole cue on one or two strings easily. In fact, I often do. The whole cue is just one or two strings. Hmm. I don't have to impress myself with how many chords I play or what it sounds like. I don't care what, in other words, Bobby, the guitar is simply a tool to me. It's not, I, t I transpose myself away from the fact that it's a guitar and I say, here's a bunch of strings that I can make cool sounds with. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. Last question, Rich. You've gone through a number of different, I'm going to say careers, because you've done a lot of different things. Before you arrived at where you're at now, you're a businessman, you're an entrepreneur, and every time you're in a different business, so to speak. What's the best piece of business advice that you received from someone, or maybe you learned along the way? Business advice, great question. I love business, and I will not be shy in telling you I love to make money. However, I love to make money doing a craft. In other words, I like to, to be compensated. I feel strongly that I should be compensated for my work. And this isn't out of anything. Let me just close the door. We'll start it one more time. Okay, so in the answer to that question, um, business advice, I am very lucky to have gone to business school when I was, studying college. I didn't even go to music. I got a business education. I've always loved to make money and to make money by doing art and to, by doing what I love. Now, that's not a cocky statement. That is simply confidence in saying, all right, here's my product. This is what it's worth. Now, it, my advice to someone is to get so good at your craft and so good at what you do that you can create your own financial destiny. Now, the, the, those may be generic words, but when you're a kid coming up the chain and you want to like make money in this business, well, you know what? Are you better at Pro Tools than anybody else? Because if you are, you're going to make money. Are you better at your competitors at what you do? Even You don't have to be the best. I strive to be the best. I truly do. But just get exceptionally good at your craft and study it like no business. And that's the piece of business advice that I would use. It's simple, but it's absolutely true. Do you agree with me? I do. Absolutely. You know, the problem with that, I have to say though, is it's easier when you get older to focus on that from the standpoint that you have a better idea of what that goal is. When you're just starting out, there's a lot of advice on what to do. There's a lot of avenues for you to take, and it can be very confusing in order to, what should I specialize in? Or even the fact that you don't even know what it is that you really like. It's easier when you get older. Right. All right. You, you got a great point there. Um, what should you specialize in? When it comes to business advice, I definitely, without question, would say specialize in something that your gut tells you to specialize in. So in other words, when I did surround sound, my gut told me to specialize in that. But with that in mind, I also am very in much in favor of reading the tea leaves to where the financial implications of that particular aspect of business will go. I could clearly see 
that surround sound was not going to pay me what I particularly wanted and what I thought I was worth. So I evolved out into the world of television land and I saw where royalties was my particular, you know, way to go. And also it allowed me to work on my own without too much supervision over me. The point that I'm getting at is that for upcoming people in the business, you got to unfortunately or fortunately do everything to see what floats your boat and what's also going to make your money while you float that boat. And then if it's not going to pay you what you're worth, it will take time definitely, but you have to look ahead one, three, five, and 10 years and say, is this going to be paying me money? One of the interesting things that I hear when I ask that question is a lot of people get to a point and they say, hmm, not so sure I want to do this for whatever reason. The live sound guys, especially, I, I hear this o over and over. Live sound guys go, oh, I don't want to be in the road anymore, or I'm losing my hearing or whatever. I better move on to something else or another aspect. But it's pretty interesting. I think that there comes a point in time in your career when perhaps your goals change or your outlook on everything changes, and then you, you really focus in on it. But you're right. You know, when you're first starting, the world is your oyster, so you, you can do everything, and you probably should do everything until you kind of figure it out. Definitely. Um, but also follow what you're, you know, follow that instinct, follow what you're good at. Actually, not just good. I don't even like the word good. Follow what you can consider yourself to be one of the best in the business at. Yeah. That's a broad statement. Boy, it's true. It really is true. Yeah. I tend to surround myself with those who are literally in the best of the best at what they do. And that's why you get great results. To find out more about Rich, go to his website at richtozoli.com. That's Rich, R-I-C-H, Tozoli, T-O-Z-Z-O-L-I, all one word, richtozoli.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.